Please open, if you would, your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 31. We'll begin at verse 2 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Second Chronicles 31, verses 2 to 21. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings of morning and evening, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. And he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord." As soon as the command was spread abroad, the people of Israel gave in abundance the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in, in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the people of Israel and Judah, who lived in the cities of Judah, also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep, and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God, and laid them in heaps. In the third month, they began to pile up the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. When Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. And Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites about the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough and have plenty left, for the Lord has blessed his people so that we may have, so that we have this large amount left. Then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. And they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. The chief officer in charge of them was Conaniah the Levite, with Shimei, his brother, as second, while Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahath, Asahel, Jeremoth, Josabad, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahath, and Benaiah were overseers, assisting Conaniah and Shimei, his brother by the appointment of Hezekiah the king and Azariah the chief officer of the house of God. And Kor, the son of Imna the Levite, keeper of the east gate, was over the freewill offerings to God to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. Eden, Miniamin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah were faithfully assisting him in the cities of the priests to distribute the portions to their brothers, old and young alike, by divisions." except those enrolled by genealogy, males from three years old and upward, all who entered the house of the Lord as the duty of each day required for their service according to their offices by their divisions. The enrollment of the priests was according to their father's houses. That of the Levites from 20 years old and upward was according to their offices by their divisions. They were enrolled with all their little children, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, the whole assembly. For they were faithful in keeping themselves holy. And for the sons of Aaron, the priests, who were in the fields of common land belonging to their cities, there were men in the several cities who were designated by name to distribute portions to every male among the priests and to everyone among the Levites who was enrolled. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. 
And every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for, but they're not just records of your Old Testament people, but they are sermons given by your Holy Spirit. And they have great applicability to us today. Oh, Father, let us hear and apply them that we might do your work faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles 31 is one of those chapters that reminds us that this book was not written primarily for historical or even theological reasons, but with a pastoral purpose. The unidentified chronicler, and again, I don't really know who he is. There are theories, but we are not told who he is. He was one of those helping to lead the community of Jewish people who had returned from exile to Jerusalem. I would say the year's about 475 BC when he's writing this. And he was charged, they were charged with restoring the practice of biblical religion in the promised land. Now in this chapter, the theme is the, is the restoration of biblical church order and administration with emphasis on financial provision for the priestly and Levitical families. Nehemiah chapter 13 provides a snapshot of some of the problems that were being faced right around the time Second Chronicles being, was being produced. And Nehemiah had been away from Jerusalem and he discovered when he returned that the Levites were not being provided for. The result was that instead of maintaining worship within the restored temple, the Levites were out in the fields working to provide for their families to feed them. Nehemiah 13.10, well, Nehemiah responded by organizing the Levitical clans according to their biblical pattern and organizing the system of tithes that enabled these servants of God to focus on their liturgical and teaching ministries. Now in a situation like that, it's not hard to see why the chronicler thinks this is an important amount of material. The subject matter of chapter 31, he devoted so much attention to this reformation that Hezekiah performed after leading the people in the Feast of Passover. Well, Second Chronicles 31 then is about this important work of, king, of Judah's King Hezekiah to establish the church on a biblical organization, the temple establishment, and to ensure that the worship of God and the ministry of his word would be performed. I suppose few Christians today are as excited about church order as the chronicler was. That's a difference that shows our relative lack of wisdom. The chronicler knew with Nehemiah that God's church fulfills its God-ordained callings only as it is organized and supported along biblical lines. The example of Hezekiah, therefore, was intended as an inspiration for the chronicler's post-exilic church that they would be properly organized. It also provides important principles for the church today. Well, immediately upon coming to sole rule over Judah, that's around the years uh, 715 B.C., we remember that Hezekiah, the first thing he did the first months was he had the idols taken out of the temple. And he had the temple building cleaned out and the doors that had been locked shut were opened. That's 2 Chronicles 29, 3-19. The next thing he did was he consecrated the priests and Levites so that there would be ministers to serve there. Uh, 2 Chronicles 29, 20-36. Then he united the nation in their spiritual legacy by having them celebrate together the Passover. 
But with all that done, he now needed to organize the religious establishment for the ongoing work of ministry. He's continuing his reformation. And here he organizes the priests and the Levites as God had commanded in the law of Moses. Now, Hezekiah's example reminds us that reformation involves not innovation to keep up with changing times, that's not our calling, but rather the restoration of biblical norms and practices in the life of the church. That's what he was doing. The king wanted to provide for future spiritual blessing, and so to do so, he restored Israel on its former, on its past, biblical foundation. The pattern we have is there's formation, there's deformation through sin, and then our job is reformation to restore ourselves on God's word. Well, that's what he's doing. He removed the idols from Jerusalem, but he knew that Only a renewed biblical spirituality could keep the people from sliding back into sin. That meant they needed biblical worship. That meant they needed faithful preaching of God's word. And to that end, the temple servants needed to be organized along biblical lines. Well, with all this in mind, verse 2 says that Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. Now notice here, even the terminology, the camp of the Lord, that, that's speaking of the, the, the temple. And that reflects a back-to-the-Bible theme. It wasn't a camp anymore, but that he's thinking in terms of the Exodus. He's thinking in terms of the biblical establishment before there was a temple and when the nation lived in camps in their Exodus sojourn. Well, it helps to understand the relative roles of the priests and Levites. The Levites were the descendants of the tribe of Levi, which God had set apart for sacred service, Numbers 3, 11 to 12. And during the Exodus sojourn, the Levites took charge of the physical apparatus of the tabernacle, along with all its equipment. The clan of Gershon was was entrusted with a tent of meeting, all its coverings and hangings and hides. The Kohathites took charge of the Ark of the Covenant and the other sacred vessels. The clan of Merari, these are all Levites, different kinds of them. The Merarites cared for the tent frames, the pillars and its accessories. That's all in Numbers 3. Now, in the time of King David, when the temple was being built, David was preparing for Solomon to build the temple, David realized that some of this had to change. And inspired as he was as a prophet of the Lord, he updated the Levitical establishment. You'll find it in 1 Chronicles 23. And now the Levites were to assist the Aaronic priests in the offering of non-atoning sacrifices There were many other duties. They were uh, to teach God's word. They were involved in temple worship. Levites, some of them served as musicians, others as gatekeepers, still others as treasurers. And what Hezekiah does here is he restores all these functions built originally on the original plan of Moses, but then as that was updated through the inspired prophetic ministry of King David, he is restoring the Levitical order. Now, within the tribe of Levi, there was one special family, the family of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was Israel's first high priest. And that one family provided the priests. And the priests served inside the temple. They are the ones who offered the burnt offerings. That is the sacrifices of atonement. And David, in 1 Chronicles 24, had organized the priests into their divisions. There were 24 shifts. 
one shift per hour, and they rotated days. He wanted to make sure that there was somebody always offering the sacrifices in the temple. There was an organization. He's a man after my own heart. He believed that system beats good, good, uh, 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 method beats good, uh, good intentions. He systematically organized it. And he restored, uh, the, Hezekiah restores this system, verse 2. He appoints the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, division by division, each according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to minister in the gates of the camp of the Lord and to give thanks and praise. Well, you and I are not living in the Old Testament. The coming of Jesus has changed many things. Primarily, we no longer have our sin provisionally atoned for by the sacrifice of lambs, bulls, and goats. Why? Because the true Lamb of God has come and all those other sacrifices have gone away. Well, that was the chief purpose of the temple. That's why we don't have a temple. The temple primarily existed for the offering of atoning sacrifices. And accordingly, the New Testament church today is biblically organized along a much more streamlined basis. According to the New Testament, God has provided pastor-teachers And these ordained men are to labor full-time in the ministry of God's word, Ephesians 4.11. The church is also to be governed by elders who are chosen among the people, and they ensure that the teaching and practice of God's word is being done correctly. They rule over the church's affairs. They shepherd the people of God, 1 Timothy 3.1-7, Titus 1.5-9, 1 Peter 5.1-4. The office of deacon was established in the apostolic age to oversee the ministry of good works, to organize and distribute church finances and care for church property. Acts chapter 6, 1 to 6, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. Now, these matters may seem boring or at least mundane compared to really exciting stuff like miracles and evangelism and theological teaching. And yet, biblical church government is exciting. It's important. It's essential to the church's ability to fulfill its calling. If the elders are not watching over the church and its peoples, well, errors, I guarantee you, are bound to intrude and sheep will go astray. If there are no deacons taking care of day-to-day church affairs, there's no time for the elders to fulfill their function. There's no time for the ministers to be devoted to the study and preaching of Holy Scripture. There's an important moment in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, that shows how important it is for all aspects of church government to function as biblically designed. There was a problem with the distribution of collections for the widows in the early church. And so the apostles needed the help of deacons so that, as Peter put it, the apostles could devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It was a result of the New Testament church organization then, Acts 6 verse 7, that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Biblical church government is important. Now, not only did Hezekiah restore the priests and the Levites to the order given through Moses and then revised by David, but he also reformed his own role as king following David's example. Look at verse 3. The contribution of the king from his own possessions was for the burnt offerings. The burnt offerings of morning and evening and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons, the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord, verse 3. Now, again, he's not innovating what he thinks would be good and exciting, but rather he's reforming his role in line with the pattern set down by David, namely that the king out of his royal treasury would pay for the sacrifices to be offered daily and on special occasions 
to atone for the sins of the nation. That took a lot of bulls, sheep, and goats. And out of the royal treasury, he provided them. Well, today, the church exists within secular nations. And so the, the state, the head of state, no longer has an obligation to finance the church directly. There are places that there's a church state. And if Christians find themselves saying, oh, I wish we were like that church that was, getting, that was paid out of the taxes of the government, if you examine closely, you will not wish for that. It almost guarantees a rapid corruption of biblical integrity and teaching. We are not for an established church state. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith upholds the separation of church and state, and yet it notes that the civil magistrate has an obligation before God to ensure the religious liberty of the people, that they may worship the Lord and teach his word without compromise. It's not the state's job to tell us what to preach or how to worship or practice. It is their job to give us the liberty so to do. Westminster Confession of Faith 23.3. Likewise, the church members have a duty of praying for God's blessing on civil leaders. Westminster Confession, third 23, paragraph 4. Now, in the United States, the government has gone even further by acknowledging the importance of religious institutions so that church property and financial offerings are tax-exempt. Matthew Henry, I think, summarizes the duty of civil leaders. He says, let the princes set out to the best interest which they give for the support and encouragement of religion in their country. Well, at the heart of chapter 31 is the generosity of the people of Judah in financial provision for the priests and Levites together with their families. We've seen that there was an organizing of the Old Testament church under Hezekiah along biblical lines. But then somebody had to support this organization. Verse 4, so he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and Levites that they might give themselves to the law of the Lord. Now, by referring to the portion due to the priests and Levites, the chronicler is referring to the Old Testament tithe. That command by which God's people were to give a tenth of their proceeds to support the ministry of God's servants. And Hezekiah summoned the people of Jerusalem, who probably mainly supplied money, but also the rural populace. And they brought tithes of produce and livestock. Verse 5, the first fruits of grain, wine, oil, honey, all the produce of the field. Verse 6, the people of Israel and Judah who live in the cities of Judah that's the outlying cities, also brought in the tithe of cattle and sheep and the tithe of the dedicated things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God. Now, the main idea of the tithe is that everything we possess belongs to God. The tithe does not teach that one-tenth of what we have belongs to God. It teaches that everything we have belongs to God, and we glorify him by giving the tithe. We acknowledge his lordship, and we play our role in providing for his gospel ministry. Now, there are Christians, I think many Christians, who maintain that the principle of tithing, giving 10% of one's income, no longer pertains to New Testament believers. And the argument is that uh, since in the Old Testament the tithe was joined to the support of Levites and priests, and the Levites and priests no longer exist, therefore neither, neither does the tithe. What they're forgetting, however, is that the principle of tithing did not originate with Israel and the temple establishment. It can be traced to the time of Abraham, who tithed from the spoils of his victory over the kings of the east out of thanksgiving to the Lord. That's Genesis 14, verse 20. 
Now, it turns out that the New Testament provides a great deal of information pertaining to Christian giving and the support of the church. Let me point out just a few of the themes of the Apostle Paul, particularly in First and Second Corinthians, about Christian giving. Now, first, he notes that Christian giving should be willing rather than compulsory. Second Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so Paul was not sending heavies around. The deacons were not given clubs to go house to house to collect the money by force. No, it was to be a, a, a willing thing. In some of the old Southern Presbyterian churches, it was the duty of the deacons to go house to house, not to seize the money, but to exhort it. There was one Presbyterian church in Richmond, Virginia, prior to the Civil War, whose deacon who went house to house was a Thomas Jackson, later known as Stonewall Jackson. I'm going to guess he brought in the tithes. But it is the principle that says to be willing, not under compulsion, it's to be willing That spirit should be seen in how we handle these matters. Now, secondly, Christians should give regularly and systematically. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul said, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. The idea there is that Christians are to exercise financial stewardship in response to God's grace, and they're to manage their money so as to give on a planned and regular basis. Giving is to be willing, not compulsory. It's to be regular and systematic. Thirdly, Christians are to give proportionally to their wealth. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. You think of Jesus' example of the widow's mite. She gave only two pennies, but it was sacrificial giving. and That's what really impacted the Lord. Well, people inevitably ask, well, what is the proper proportion? We're to give proportionally, so what is it? Well, the primary New Testament answer is generously, generously. When Paul praised the Macedonian churches for their giving in relief of suffering Christians, he highlighted not the amount that they give, gave, but rather the generosity they had shown despite the fact that they were themselves in poverty. 2 Corinthians 8.2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In fact, if the New Testament is a guide, poverty is a relative incentive to Christians uh, to give. It's certainly borne out demographically in America. If you look at which states have the highest per capita income and which states have the, uh, the highest per capita charitable giving, they are large, mainly invertedly related. The wealthiest part of America gives percentage-wise the least. The poorer parts of America give percentage-wise the most. It probably reflects the value that we place on money with respect to God. We are to give proportionally. Well, the chronicler notes that when Hezekiah's call went out, look at verse 5, they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And so there's a spiritual fervor going on in Jeremiah's time, and it's being reflected in the generosity of giving. And that's the way the New Testament sees it. We give in response to our awareness of the great grace that God has given us. What generous grace he's given us. And so we should abound, Paul says, in every good work, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, including our financial giving. 
Now, if the Old Testament standard of abundance was the tithe, it is hard to argue that the New Testament standard in which God's grace has been so much more generous is any less than that. Well, like our Old Testament forebears, Christians give today with an aim, and that primary aim is to provide for the vital ministry of the church. Look at verse 4. The tithe was given so that the priests and Levites might give themselves to the law of the Lord. That would include their liturgical duties, making sacrifices, some for atonement, some for thanks and praise, and also the teaching of God's word. And when Hezekiah's priests observed all that had been given, they were encouraged. Look at verse 10. Azariah the chief priest said this, Since they began to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we, the priests, have eaten and had enough and have plenty left. And so what they were primarily giving for was so that the Levites and the priests would not have to do secular work to feed their families, but they would devote themselves full-time to their sacred work. And everyone benefited from this arrangement. Those called to serve in the temple were devoting themselves wholeheartedly to that sacred work that the spiritual climate of the whole nation was elevated. Well, likewise today, Christians give to the local church primarily to support its ministry and ministry staff. Whenever churches are able, pastors should be paid sufficiently so they can work full-time in ministry while having the needs of their family met. Now, there are small churches, there are impoverished churches that can't do that, and they pay a spiritual price. The minister's not able to work on his sermons. There's no, there's no time, there's no manpower to do the ministry, and the whole church suffers. Well, Paul urged in 1 Corinthians 9 that ministers should not be frustrated by unmet financial needs. He cited the Old Testament proverb, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 1 Corinthians 9, 9. Now there's a corollary to that. The ministers are to be provided for so they can devote themselves full-time to their ministry work. The corollary is that they are to devote themselves full-time. They're to be hardworking. They're to be zealous in the labor given to them. Churches, therefore, who keep their their ministry staff financially stressed are only impoverishing themselves spiritually. There was a tradition, I think, that's going away, and it's good that it's going away because it was unbiblical, that a minister showed his spirituality, as it was said, by repeating the miracle of the loaves and fish on his dinner table every night. That was not biblical in the least. And it wore out a generation of preachers. Well, this approach gives the whole congregation the privilege of participating in the gospel witness of the church. James Boyce writes this, Giving is a privilege given to Christians by God. It's a privilege because it's a way in which we all are partners with God in assuring that the gospel and its benefits are being made known to people. Well, there's a final principle highlighted by the chronicler here, and that is that financial giving by God's people is both a sign of God's blessing, a sign of God's grace working among them. It's also a source of God's blessing. Look at verse 8. They saw the heaps of offerings, and Hezekiah blessed the Lord. Now, why is he blessing the Lord? Because the Lord deserves the credit for it. It was the Lord's grace at work in the people's lives that was doing this. The high priest took the same position. He looked on the excellent provision for the priests and Levites, and he said in verse 10, the Lord has blessed his people so that we have this large amount left. 
Well, generous giving blesses God's people by enabling them together to accomplish worthy goals for Christ. Let me say one of the joys of serving as pastor of this church is the faithfulness and the generosity of this congregation, which enables us to do things like increase our missions budget. I hope you've noticed our missions moments on Wednesday nights. You're going, we sure have a lot of missionaries. We do. It's exciting. There's great things to be done out there. Uh, One of the things we've had uh, almost every year I've been here as pastor, that's 15 years now, we've had a surplus at the end of the year. The congregation has met the financial needs as it ought to feel a duty to do, and there was money left over. And in most years, a lot of it, this year it was half of it, there's other needs that are given, but half of that money has been given to missions. Uh, that, that allows our missions committee, boy, they certainly love this, and they get to give special gifts to people in need. They're able to be strategic. I remember, oh, it's a number of years ago, we had been working with several churches to build a physical church building in the Andes, the San Jose Church outside Cajamarca, and uh, a huge amount of labor. I, I personally helped lay the concrete floor of that with one of my sons, and, but it, we ran out of money. The, the project ran out of money, and, and so it languished. There's the congregation, the people in that area around Cajamarca. They, we were building a church, but there was no roof on the church. And it was a surplus giving of this congregation that enabled our missions committee to write one check that covered the entire amount. And because of the generosity of this church, that congregation was able to finish their building and worship a few years ago. In fact, right before COVID hit, I was preaching at an anniversary service in Cajamarca and that congregation came down and it brought tears to my eyes just because I knew that that congregation existed because there's many things, of course, but one of the reasons was the generosity of the giving of this church. Isn't that satisfying? We can do important things together. What a blessing it is for us. Scripture further teaches that God blesses those believers who give generously. Now, we want to be careful. We don't want to emphasize that we should give to God as a way of getting financial blessings for ourselves. That's not the Bible's teaching. And yet, The prophet Malachi urged the same post-exilic community to which our book was written, the Chronicles, uh, this promise, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi 3 verse 10, he's saying you're not going to outgive God. He will provide for those who trust and serve him. Well, most importantly, generous financial giving not only ensures that the church is well-provisioned for its vital gospel ministry, but it also expresses our thanksgiving to Jesus for his generosity in redeeming us from guilt and sin. Maybe Paul's most important and most well-known statement about giving is 2 Chronicles 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. His point was not only that we should imitate Jesus' generous self-sacrifice in our support of the gospel, but also that generous giving reveals a heart that is grateful to Christ and desires sacrificially to support his ongoing saving work in this world. Well, the third portion of Hezekiah's ministry reform put in place the administration that was needed to ensure, as Paul once put it, that all things should be done decently in order, that most Presbyterian of all the New Testament sayings. 
that all things should be done decently and in order. Accordingly, verses 11 and 12, the king commanded them to provide, prepare chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them, and they faithfully brought in the contribution, the tithes, and the dedicated things. You see, it wasn't right that the donations from the people were lying in piles on the temple courts. Well, this needed to be administered. That Somebody had to count it. It had to be stored somewhere. It had to be gathered. It had to be prepared for distribution. Hezekiah's emphasis shows that proper church administration today has an important spiritual goal, both in shepherding the resources of the church and also maintaining a very clear integrity in how the church handles money. Well, verses 12 to 15 detail the overseers who were needed to provide this administrative stewardship. The chief officer was Conaniah the Levite with Shimei, his brother, as second, verse 12. And they were assisted by lower overseers, a number of them who managed the more detailed work. I will not read all those names again. Now, one man named Kor, the son of Imna the Levite, was made gatekeeper of the east gate. Verse 14, and he supervised the freewill offerings to God and to apportion the contribution reserved for the Lord and the most holy offerings. In other words, the money had to be managed both coming in and going out. There had to be accountability. Distributions were made to the priestly families, including males as young as three years old. Now, what's going on there? It shows their investment in future generations. They're, 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 the priestly group was a small group. You needed every priest. And so at age three, they, they became under special notice and got special provision. Uh, verses 15 and 16. The families were provided for so that the priests would be available, verse 16, for their service according to all their offices by their divisions. Now, likewise, distributions were made to the Levitical families. There's a lot more of them. From 20 years old and upward, according to their offices, by their divisions, they were enrolled with all their little children, their wives, their sons, their daughters, the whole assembly, verses 17 and 18. Now, here again, the principle of providing for minister's family so that they are free for full-time labor in God's house. Now, here, Levitical males were specially provided for at age 20. You're saying what's going on there? Well, there were, there were a lot more Levites. And the priests were the particularly key ones. It reflects that priority. But this system of administration, we're told, was spread throughout the country. Verse 19, for the sons of Aaron, the priests who were in the fields of common land belonging to the cities. There were Levitical plots outside each city. It took place there. Throughout Judah, the ministry of priests and Levites would be well supported. Now, when it comes to this exciting and vital matter of church administration. I hope you noticed a, 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 an, ad, an adverb that is frequently read in what I was reading there, and that adverb was faithfully. You say, what are we looking for in church administration? Faithfully. Verse 12, they were faithfully to bring in the contributions, just as the counting of church offerings today must be done competently and with the highest integrity. They were to distribute the offerings, verse 15, faithfully among the priests and Levites. They, in turn, were to be faithful in keeping themselves holy. That refers to their obligation to remain consecrated for temple service. Andrew Stewart writes, the essence of their faithfulness was dependability. These men had been asked to do a job, and they did it. Well, God holds us today to the same standard in our callings, including our calling to financial stewardship, and especially those who were called to serve the Lord in vocational ministry. We are to be faithful. 
And that makes us think of Matthew 25, Jesus' famous parable of the talents, where no other standard than that was given by the Lord. The praise that is given for which each of us should long to hear was well done, good and faithful servant, Matthew 25, 21. And Jesus reminds us in that parable that every Christian has a calling. Every Christian has a spiritual vocation. They go with our gifts. For some, it's preaching. For, for, it's, for all of us, it's giving. There's praying. There's the encouragement of other believers. There's evangelism. That's a calling we all share. There's all kinds of spiritual gifts and therefore callings in the church. The, the great question we each must consider is whether or not we're being faithful. Are we serving in the church? Are we using our gifts? Are we giving Are we being faithful to biblical truth and practice? Are we being zealous in the way God wants us to be? Well, Jesus said that faithfulness begins in little things and they end up having a big significance. You have been faithful over a little, he says. I will set you over much. Now you think of this list of names in the Chronicles list. We probably may never even think of them again in our lives, many of us. It seems like a little thing to us, these odd names. These are people who serve the Lord in a very significant way, and their names are recorded in sacred scripture. Their administrative faithfulness allowed God's word to go forth during this crucial crossroads, the reign of Hezekiah. It resulted in an ancient heritage of faith that went forward until one day it came in Christ to us. We too may feel insignificant with the great events of our time, but if we will be faithful in the small things that God has set before us, we too will have honor in the records of God and a great significance in the history of his people. Hudson Taylor's famous precept applies to all things, but especially to Christian service. He said a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. Well, what was true for the lowest administrator in Judah's religious establishment was equally true of the king. King Hezekiah on his royal throne. And the chronicler applies the same standard of God's approval, celebrating the enormous impact achieved through this one godly king. Look at verse 20. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah. He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. Now what's interesting is that this seems to be the main, the primary summary of King Hezekiah's whole life. And readers want to go, that's it? That that he reorganized the church? That he cleaned out the temple building? He got the ministers going? He arranged a tithing system and administration? I mean, that's what you had to say about his whole life? What about the wars he fought? Uh Oh, he did fight wars. In fact, you really can't fail to mention one of them. It's coming up in the next chapter. He he did that. He won battles. He defended the, the nation. He had building projects. You know, one of the things... That gets a brief mention here is one of the architectural marvels of the ancient world. You can see pictures of it on the internet because they found it is the tunnel he had driven to the pool of Siloam. Oh, he had great engineering feats to his name. Oh, yeah, he did. But what really mattered in his life was his commitment to serving the church. And that he did, we read, with all his heart. And as a result, he prospered under God's blessing. Let me say that like Hezekiah, it is extremely likely that the most important and valuable contributions of your life, each and every one of us of your life, will be made through the regular, faithful, weekly, monthly, 
yearly work of being part of a local church that seem mundane or boring. Oh, not according to the chronicler. No, that's where the great work is done. Partnering together in a local congregation, preaching the word, spreading the gospel, supporting missionaries, going to the missionary prayer meeting, doing all the, I'm just scratching the surface of all the different things we do. According to the chronicler, that's what he's excited about, not the engineering fee. Not even 701 BC, the great victory. He's going to cover it. But he wraps up Hezekiah's life before then. It's kind of an afterthought. Oh, he was faithful in supporting and establishing the church so its work could be done and for us too, so it will be. The great thing we will do in our lives for virtually every one of us will do here. We'll do it in the local church. We'll do it together. We'll do it by preaching the gospel. We'll do it by praying together. We'll do it through our missionary labors. We'll do it through our public worship of the true and living God to the praise of his glory. Let me wrap it up by mentioning the picture of a man who's on my my bookshelf. I was talking to one of our ministers this morning. He saw it. It's a picture of an elderly African-American man named Lawrence Dow. And uh, Lawrence was a deacon at 10th Presbyterian Church. In fact, he was a deacon on duty the night that I was converted. It's one of the reasons I have a special place in my heart for Lawrence, because his smiling face played a role in bringing me into the door where the preacher declared Jesus to me. And I got to know Lawrence over the coming years. I won't, spend, I won't describe it in too detail, but he would get involved in the lives of people like me. A young man, he took me to Little Pete's Diner and asked me, do you know how to read your Bible? Not really. Can I show you? Thank you. You know how to pray? Well, no, I'm kind of struggling. Well, here's how you pray. They tore down Little Pete's Diner and they put in like a 20-story apartment building. What a loss. And and Lawrence was a doorman. I, I know he didn't have a high school degree. He was a doorman at an apartment building, a condo building in downtown Philadelphia. He wore a uniform. He held a door for richer people to go through. And he was a loser in the eyes of the world. He's on the opposite end of King Hezekiah, but you know what? He was so much much like him. And to cut to the chase, Lawrence finally died after a long bout of cancer. And we held his funeral in the sanctuary. Sanctuary held 1,000 people. I think 1,200 people came to Lawrence's funeral. It was was overwhelming, and it was a long funeral because there were testimonies given. A, A lot more testimonies than Presbyterians are usually comfortable with. And the stories were told of the people he'd evangelized and he mentored the three pastors. I don't know where he got the money as a doorman to help put them through seminary. And they were now pastoring churches and it just went on and on. The legacy of this man of God, he was somebody who was a nobody in the eyes of the world. What a glorious thing. And I remember sitting in the office with my fellow pastor at the time and we were sitting in his office and he turned to me and he said, you know, Rick, we were actually stunned. It was actually humbling to us. We were the ministers who got the attention. There was the great Christian. And he said to me, you know, Rick, it just goes to show you what God will do in the life of any Christian who wholeheartedly consecrates their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Hezekiah did. He happened to be king. What happens if you, in the church, in the regular work of the church, you will unreservedly consecrate your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there will be little things, but your faithfulness in little things will add up to very big things. Father, we thank you for this chapter about administration in second chronicles 31 and you think it's important and lord it clearly manifestly is and father particularly let us aspire to faithfulness zeal wholehearted christian living together as a church and individually we know that you will do great things in and through us and what we want to hear is that highest of all accolades that our lord jesus when he returns would say to us well done 
thou good and faithful servant. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.